Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, continuing medical education podcast. Join us every other week for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. We are so glad you could join us today. Today we have an incredible episode planned for you with a guest that I've been looking forward to speaking with for a while now. We will look at one of the leading computerized ECG interpretation programs that has shaped the ECG criteria used in clinical practice today. We'll be joined by a special guest, the pioneer and the leader himself, to glean some insight into the program's evolution and what the future looks like in the field of computerized electrocardiology. I'm very excited for this discussion, so let's waste no more time and get started. The ECG is critical in making timely medical decisions that can save lives. The use of computerized ECG interpretation software was developed to support clinical decision-making and workflow. Early investigative works for the methods to analyze ECGs with automated techniques were started at the University of Glasgow. They began in the 1960s, and since that initial decision to develop an ECG analysis program in the late 1970s, and with its refinement over the years, the University of Glasgow ECG interpretation software has represented one of the world's premier resting ECG analysis programs. Apart from accurate rhythm and interpretive analysis in both adult and pediatric patients, it has demonstrated a particular advantage in recognizing ST elevation, myocardial infarction, or STEMI. In fact, the algorithm's STEMI rule-based criteria based on age, gender, and lead variation helped improve the STEMI ECG criteria guidelines used in medical practice. While computerized ECG interpretation takes its share of jabs for its imperfections, its clinical value is undisputed, and its importance has only grown in an age of fading ECG literacy amongst medical providers. How did the University of Glasgow's computerized ECG analysis program come about? What did the commercial development and refinement processes look like? What does the future of computerized electrocardiology look like? Well, that brings us to our focus today, the evolution of the University of Glasgow's computerized ECG interpretation program. And there's perhaps no better person to discuss this topic with us than the lead developer himself, Professor Peter McFarlane. Professor McFarlane is Emeritus Professor and Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the University of Glasgow. He was Professor in Medical Cardiology from 1991 to 1995, and Professor of Electrocardiology from 1995 until 2010. His basic training was in math and natural philosophy, and he obtained a Doctor of Science degree in 2000 for a compilation of publications on computerized assisted reporting of electrocardiograms. The work of his team has been adopted commercially, and the University of Glasgow ECG interpretation program developed in his laboratory is currently used worldwide. He has a particular interest in the differences in ECG appearances due to age, gender, and ethnicity, and as a result, he has influenced international guidelines for the ECG definition of acute myocardial infarction. Professor McFarlane has also established a central ECG laboratory for handling ECGs, recorded national and internationally for clinical trials, as well as for epidemiologic studies, including the landmark West of Scotland Coronary Prevention Study. 
He has published over 400 scientific papers and 14 books, some of which are conference proceedings. He was also jointly awarded the 1998 Ryland International Prize of Electrocardiology by the Belgian Royal Academy of Medicine. And in January 2014, he was awarded the Commander of the Order of the British Empire, or CBE, for his services to healthcare. Professor McFarlane, what a true honor to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for your very kind uh, introduction. I'm delighted to be able to, to join you to what I've been doing over these past few years. Yeah, I know. I mean, the intro is easy to write, you know, to be honest, uh, looking at all what you've done, it's been incredible. And this is something I've been truly looking forward to. And so there's so much that we can discuss, but we'll kind of narrow it in and we're going to probably start from the beginning. Can you take us back to the beginning of the ECG analysis and maybe tell us how it all began in Glasgow? Well, if I'm truly honest, I have to take you back to 1964 when I heard that there was an interest in the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow uh, in looking at automated interpretation of ECGs. Dr. Veach Laurie at the time had noticed what was happening in uh, the US and Washington, and he uh, put out some soundings to see if anyone would be interested in this project, and that's where I came onto the scene. So in mid-summer 1964, I really started off on some PhD work to look at the topic of automated ECG interpretation. Unfortunately, Dr. Laurie hadn't been able to provide anything in the way of equipment in those days, so I started with a pencil and a paper. That meant that for a couple of years, I had to extensively in electrocardiography, mathematical modeling of, of the ECG, uh, get engaged in the practical aspects of ECG recording just so that I was fully aware of what it was about, did that for a while. And then uh, eventually, uh, Dr. Laurie sent me on a study tour to Washington to see uh, Dr. Pittberger, Dr. Caceres, and believe it or not, I visited the Mayo Clinic in the spring of 1965, but I don't think I saw you around <laughs> at that point. I may, I may have missed you. But anyway, shortly afterwards, we were able to obtain some funding from the British Heart Foundation and the Nuffield Provincial Hospitals Trust that enabled us. And we were fortunate that at that time, digital equipment company in Maynard, Massachusetts, had developed a small laboratory computer called the PDP-8. We were able to buy a PDP-8 and ECG recording equipment, and that got us started. It did allow us to... I record the ECG to the PDP-8 in analog form, and then there was a process of changing the electrical signal into digital form. And that data was written to a small tape, magnetic tape called a deck tape. Unfortunately, the University of Glasgow computer could not read a deck tape. So what happened was these deck tapes were sent down to Rolls-Royce in Bristol, where they were building the Concorde. And they had equipment that allowed one tape transfer a much larger tape, which then came back to Glasgow, and we could use that on the larger university computer, which was a few miles away from the hospital. But that was enough to allow us to record ECGs, transform them to digital form, take them to the university, develop some software, and that allowed us to analyze the ECGs, complete with interpretation. At the time, we looked at two forms of ECG. One was 
using three leads, the other was using 12 leads. And we showed that there was a very marginal improvement using the three CG. And that was basically the start that we made and was really the, the conclusion of my PhD thesis. And so that all began, you were saying, in 1964. What was your, I guess, experience up until that point? You know, it seems like you went to pen to paper to start it. Did you already have some background or was this something, you know, of interest to you that you like you wanted to take on? Uh, and who else was maybe, you know, in that space at the time? Dr. Caceres was looking at the 12VDCG in Washington and also in Washington, Gilbert Puttberger in the VA hospital was looking at the three-lead approach, three leads recorded simultaneously, known as the orthogonal leads. So these were the other folks. There were a few groups in Europe thinking of doing this, particularly one in Rotterdam. They were looking at ECG analysis in around about 1967, if I remember correctly. But there weren't very many people at that time engaged in this. Sure. Having said that, sure. I know that Dr. Smith in the Mayo Clinic was very interested. Uh, he was working with IBM at the time to develop software for ECG interpretation. Interesting. So, Ralph you know, there Smith. weren't many people, you know, out there doing, you know, much things similar. I, I guess, you know, one of the things we think about is, you know, the computer, we get this interpretation, it provides, uh, or we get the recording, get an interpretation, and these labels that, you know, come out, and there's multiple, probably, you know, at least close to 100, if not more, of those labels. For instance, sinus rhythm. How do you make maybe the criteria uh, for it to recognize sinus rhythm? What are some of the key features that you have to think about as you, you program this? Well, first of all, we obviously have to detect every heartbeat, every QRS complex. Then we have to look and see if all of these heartbeats have the same morphology, same shape. Having done that, we're looking at next at the regularity of the heartbeats and so on. For sinus rhythm, we would also be looking for a P wave before the QRS complex. But that would be done by what we call wave typing. We would collect all those heartbeats of the same morphology then within that average beat, we would then be looking for a single wave prior to the QRS complex. In the rhythm interpretation as a whole, we may be looking for more than a wave, et cetera, et cetera, in an RR interval. A very complicated because, you know, you're asking a machine to detect all these, I guess, pathophys you know, the physiology of the underlying cardiac biosignal. Uh, I guess, you know, the next step, you know, as it evolved and you had this program, you know, it then got commercially developed. Like, what does that process look like? How does it start and proceed? Did it start with a full comprehensive interpretation software or did it, how did that look? When I left off really in 70, we, ha we had interpretation based on the university computer. We got the data from the hospital, took it to university and analyzed it. So the early part of the 70s, we had to bring that inside the hospital, got it all running on a PDP-8, and therefore we think we had the world's first hospital-based mini-computer system running a routine ECG interpretation service. And that ran right through until the end of the 70s. At that point, our source of funding held a meeting, an international meeting, which it was stated that 
But any further developments, you must use the 12 lead ECG. So that set us off purely on the 12 lead ECG analysis. Now, by complete chance, I knew we were opening an extension to the Royal Infirmary and we were looking for a supply for cath lab. And a representative from Siemens Elima came from Stockholm and visited the hospital to talk about the Siemens offering in terms of cath labs. And he saw what we were doing about ECG interpretation. And immediately he said, we want that software. And that's pure serendipity, but that's how it happened. At uh, that time, the university did not have anybody who knew anything about commercial developments, believe it or not, but we're going back to 1980. And so we had some consultancy help to the university, went to Stockholm, agreed a contract with Siemens Alima. And that was the start of the commercial development. Took off from there uh, by mid-1980s, uh, Siemens had a product, they called it the Mingo Rec. Didn't like Rec. Was spelled REC, but we thought it might be misinterpreted as W R E C K. So we, but nevertheless, we we had to accept the name of Mingorek. We obtained many of these machines and we used them within the hospital to have a more routine twelve lead ECG interpretation service. Siemens then bought Burdick in Milton in Wisconsin. They transferred to Deerfield in Wisconsin. Our software then made its way into the Burdick range of, of products. And then were used very widely in North America, particularly in family practice. There was a management buyout at Burdick. It's a long story, but a management buyout at Burdick. And they got in tow with Space Labs and so on. And out of all of this, Space Labs renegotiated agreements. And they said, we don't want the sole right to the software. And that then was agreed and it freed us up to license the software to any other company that wanted to use it. And I think very quickly on the scene, we worked with Physio Control, now Striker in Seattle. We had a long association with that company. For many years, we've been working with industry in different countries all around the world. It's really amazing. You call it serendipity, but you know the process and the work you'd had been doing all around, and it's, you know, it's that golden moment. You know, it's not waiting around, but you were, kind of spearheading it, and so it's amazing. You know how all the stars align. You know, as you started to commercialize this and get this out, were any studies or trials that you tried to use to maybe validate, you know, some of the work or. Yeah, yes, that's a good uh, good question. Um, one of the clinical trials which you, which you did actually mention in your introduction was the West of Scotland Coronary Prevention Study. I thought that was a great study. Um, never been replicated since in our part of the world, sorry, I should say. We had ECG machines that have been built by Mortara for Siemens, and we used these machines in various health centres around the west of Scotland for five years. Uh, the study had recruited 6,595 men, hypercholesterolemia, 45 to 65, and ultimately showed that there was a 31% relative reduction in a non-fatal and fatal myocardial infarction for those who took statin versus the placebo group. One of the things about that study was the relationship 
between the participants in the trial and those running the trial. We used to have meetings in community centres around the west of Scotland and encourage the, the wives of the participants to come along and somebody would present the best diet that they could possibly have to reduce their cholesterol levels and so on and so forth. And it was just one of the where everybody was involved, the participants and the, the trialists, the study directors them, themselves. It was excellent. And at the end of it all, the results were presented at American Heart in Los Angeles in 1995. Some of us were very lucky to be traveling here, there and everywhere. A moment's notice to give a chat about the benefits of statins. So I always remember WASCOPS has been a great trial uh, from that point of view. The other study that I can think of was so-called CSE study. I had done a short uh, tour of Europe, sponsored by European Union about 1974, looking at those that were working in the area at that time and suggested there should be some collaboration. So the European Union in 1976 funded this CSE, Common Standards for Quantitative Electrocardiology. And about 40 people got, got involved from various centers in Europe and, and North America. And for 15 years, everybody worked together. There was a steering committee of which I was lucky enough to be a member. And we met quarterly for 15 years. Major developments out of that were twofold. One was a publication on the standards for wave measurements for ECG analysis. And the second publication related to a database that was established where patients were classified from the basis of the clinical information. And that has been used as a yardstick ever since 1991 for software evaluation. We still, when we're submitting data to the FDA, for example, 12, these 1,220 ECGs to evaluate the software. So these two studies stand out to me quite significantly. Yeah, and I think some of the... <laughs> you know, the best studies that have been put together, it's, you don't really see many of them like that uh, today. You know, another specific interest just from, you know, looking at your work uh, was the influence of age, sex, you know, race and, race and ethnicity on the ECG. I guess, what prompted your initial and now continued interest uh, with those set of factors? Well, during the 1980s, we recorded ECGs from an apparently healthy group of individuals living in and around Glasgow. And from some of the very basic findings or statistics, we saw very clearly that there were differences between males and females. For example, if I ask you or any cardiologist what their criteria were for left ventricular hypertrophy or for the non-clinical folks enlargement of the you would probably say Sokolov and Lyon. Most physicians would. And they'll say, yes, this measurement and that measurement, add them together and they're greater than a threshold. That's not got any relation to age. It's not got any relation to sex. And when you look at the normal limits for males and females, young men have a very significantly higher upper limit of normal voltage than young ladies and young men have a higher voltage than old guys like me. So you, you have to tailor your criteria to fit the age and gender of the patient who's ECG examined. So that very basic study of one simple measurement certainly got me interested in looking at age and sex. The next thing that 
of significance in this respect was really a publication in 2000 by European Society of Cardiology and the American College of Cardiology. And they put forward criteria for STEMI that you mentioned earlier, a form of heart attack, as the way it shows up in the ECG. Again, there was nothing about age or gender there. They grouped three leads together. I have to say V1, V2, and V3. They grouped them as together, and every other lead was then separate. So they had criteria for the three and the criteria for the nine leads. In other words, two thresholds, one for the three leads, one for these remaining nine leads. Two problems with that. V1, V2, and V3 do not have the same upper limits of normal. V1 is very different from V2 and V3. And then age, again, ST thresholds, but that part of the segment of the ECG has a higher limit of mortality in males than in females. That led us to change these criteria. Uh, we did a lot of work with physiocontrol, nice big database at that time that allowed us to do that. And thereabouts, the next set of guidelines that come in had taken V1 away from V2 and V3. And that, that was the beginning. And they also separated male uh, and female. And it moved on a little bit uh, later on when we brought age-related criteria into it, just to, to add a little bit to it. That was the way that we helped these criteria to evolve. I think you also mentioned race there. And again, interest there rose from the fact that we had a young uh, physician from Taiwan from Taipei, he came to work in the, in the department in the early 1980s. And we became a good friends and I ultimately went to Taiwan a couple of times. But we thought it'd be good to compare these from Taiwan, look at the Chinese ECG versus the Western Caucasian uh, ECG. And we managed to ship one of these Mingo wrecks, survived, it wasn't a wreck, it survived the journey to Taipei. And recorded 500 ECGs in the Veterans General Hospital in Taipei. And from that, we were able to show differences in the thresholds of upper limits of normal, et cetera, in Chinese versus Caucasians. For example, Chinese actually have slightly higher ST thresholds uh, than the white Caucasians do. The next development there was that I had a cardiologist from Nigeria wishing to come to Glasgow to study for a higher degree, provided his work, and he obtained over a 1,000 ECGs from blacks in Nigeria. And again, we showed differences between the black population and the white population. I've also been very lucky to visit India many times, arising from a specific conference. And we set up a study there in three centres, but we didn't show any difference between uh, these South Asian ECGs and the white Caucasians. So different reasons, different ways that we've been looking at age, race, and, and sex in the ECG. And I maybe missed out one thing, was that we actually recorded 1,750 ECGs on neonates, infants, and children. You're welcome to fall asleep, anybody. If you're no, I, you know, I, I think this is amazing because... You know, I don't know, you don't like to, at least from our conversation, take credit for, you know, the, a lot of the criteria, but 
it's clear that your work has had significant influence, and maybe you weren't the one writing it, but it's influenced our colleagues that have helped to uh, devise some of the criteria we use today. The age, sex, and race are important because that's how we're able to generalize the criteria across all patients. And I think that was such an important kind of leap forward for the ECG, not thinking, you know, in Glasgow and, you know, our surrounding area, but how do we make this in India, you know, Asia, and all across, blacks, whites, and it's incredible. Now, before we end, you know, from someone that's taken this work from the very beginning and seen it through, what does the future of the Glasgow technique look like? And even the field of uh, computerized electrocardiology, where are we going? Well, I think I, think I should speak in, in general terms. In case anybody thinks what I say is a specific plan with commercial implications for what might happen in Glasgow. So I'm speaking as of it, as... as an individual, shall we say, and not on behalf of any company or anything like that. And we have, we have no uh, fantastic immediate plans, if, uh, if I'm honest. Two ways of looking at it. One, one side of it's got to be the software development, and the other side's got to be the hardware uh, development. On the software side, uh, and it's an area, of course, that you're very interested in, is the artificial intelligence in ECG interpretation. I think, and this is just a guess, I think that maybe over the next few years, we'll see an integration of the more conventional approach with the use of AI in certain aspects of ECG interpretation. I think there'll be a reluctance to put ECGs into a black box, outcomes a report, and the clinician's asked to accept what it says without any idea what the, why the diagnosis has been, maybe not even any intervals presented, et cetera, et cetera. I see a certain reluctance there, and that's why I think there'll be a merge of conventional approach with the AI machine learning type basis of interpretation. Look at the phenomenal developments where we've come from hugely sized equipment to record an ECG in a computer that was half a soccer pitch or American football pitch to interpret an ECG. And now we can do it on a wristwatch. I think the question here is whether ECG interpretation is centralized on a large computer. And it's just every ECG is transmitted to this large computer, instantaneously analyzed by whatever super duper methods you wish to have, including convolution neural networks, if that's the better way to go, I don't know. And then the result is quickly passed back to, to the device. That's possible just now, of course. But to make it more widely possible, I think maybe it's going to be a few years down the line and a commercial vendor is willing to take it on. The alternative way is to say, well, look at the way computers have evolved. As we've said, half a football pitch into a watch maybe all this phenomenal power could go into a small ECG machine. We'll continue to have immediate interpretation on the device. The advantage of the centralized approach is if you want to update the software, you can update the software immediately or whatever it takes. And all these hundreds of ECG machines that are feeding in there automatically benefit from that single change to a Otherwise, if you've got hundreds of thousands of ECG machines out there and you want to upgrade them, 
that's a big problem unless you've got equal similar methods to download software into the machines. All of these things are possible. I can't see which way it's going to go, but these are my thoughts. So I agree with you. You know, as someone that does a lot of work in the AI space and the deep learning models, it seems like AI is going to be, you know, inevitably a part of the ECG interpretation analysis. Now, I, I probably would agree with you that the rule-based and uh, the current system that we have, it's probably going to be a mesh of the two for us to have the best interpretation because we could base that on what we can see with the underlying physiology. And so I would agree with you, but it's interesting. You know, there's that software side of how far we've come to now using deep learning, convolutional neural networks, uh, and then the hardware side from the football field, as you mentioned, to our watch, right? Small devices that are even now recording even 12 lead ECGs from home. It's clear that the whole field is evolving before our eyes, and it's amazing uh, what's going on. The number of lives saved by computerized ECG interpretation programs like that from the University of Glasgow is immeasurable. The clinical value the interpretive tool adds to medical practice can sometimes be overlooked. Nevertheless, it is clear that the ability to detect, capture, and interpret cardiac biosignals in clinical practice has no end in sight and that the only way forward is to further refine such programs for our colleagues and the patients we serve. Professor McFarling, what an incredible work you and your team have done. You have been a pioneer in this field and represent an inspiration to so many, including myself. On behalf of our team, thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to a Mayo Clinic cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in every other week to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.